I'll add my greeting to Josh's. Uh, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a joy to see you here. It's a joy to be worshiping together and hearing the gospel together and receiving God's grace and his love in Christ together. Let's turn now to the Word of God. Our Old Testament reading is Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 12. Isaiah 62, 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephizbah and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace, day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest till he establishes and till he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies, and the sons of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored, but those who have gathered it shall eat it. And praise the Lord, those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And our New Testament text, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. 
but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask him to bless it to us. Lord, let us receive your word, not as the words of man, but as it is the very word of God. Let us humble ourselves before your word. Let us be taught by your word. Let us be shaped and changed and convicted and, 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 and broken and built up by your word. Lord, we cannot, by our own strength and by our own wisdom, come to understand eternal life and the things of the gospel. We need your spirit. So come and accomplish your purpose. Your word, Lord, is all-powerful. So come and speak now and give life to us in Christ Jesus by your word and spirit. We pray in his name. Amen. When Jesus takes the trouble and he takes the time to tell you something, you should listen to him. Um, He is truth itself, isn't he? When he speaks, he speaks, and it is, it is absolute truth. When he speaks, God speaks to you. And so you should pay attention to what he says. Even, even a passing, what seems like a passing side comment in the Gospels, even, even any, any part of the Word of God which seems just a, kind of a, a side thing, it's the Word of God, it's the Word of Christ. And we should give it more weight and recognize that it carries more weight than all the doctoral dissertations of man stacked up together. One word of Christ is weightier. We live by every word that proceeds from his mouth. What about when he says something twice? What about if he says the same thing over and over again? If we should give so much weight to one word of Christ, how much should we give to something that he says again and again and again? Even more. He's emphasizing a point again and again. He, he, he repeats the point. He develops the point. He illustrates the point. He applies the point. And that's what he's doing here in Matthew 24 and 25. He's, he's hitting the same point. Takes it from this angle. Takes it from this angle. Takes it from this angle. And each time he's developing it a little more. Bringing out a little more. And applying it still more to our hearts. Not only, brothers and sisters... Does he do that here? But what we're looking at in Matthew 24 and 25 is what Matthew gives us under the inspiration of the Spirit as his final lesson to his disciples. His final sermon. Crucifixion is just a couple of days away now. And he's speaking to his disciples. What does he want them to remember? What's the word he wants echoing in their ears as he goes to the cross? What does he want them to remember and hang on to? He's giving them a final word. So he's repeating himself. He's giving this as the conclusion to so much of his ministry. What is that point? It's to be ready for his kingdom. 
That's what we've been looking at together over these few weeks now, um, that, that Christ is hammering home the point that as children of God, as sons of the kingdom, as those who want to be following Christ and part of his kingdom, we need to be ready. We need to be spiritually wide awake and alert to the coming of Christ, recognizing that he's coming soon and ready for him to come. This point is so important to Christ that he presents it in the parable we're looking at this morning that we read together, not just as good advice for your spiritual health, but as absolutely necessary for your spiritual existence. He doesn't just present this as, here's some good advice to how to live as a Christian, but here's what's necessary for living as a Christian, for being part of the kingdom of God. He he draws a permanent dividing line in this parable between those who are ready and those who are not ready. What's at stake is is the kingdom and, and, and our place in the kingdom. So he treats readiness for his return as this great non-negotiable, this thing of, 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 of utmost importance, and that it should be the business of our lives to be getting ready for him to come. We should be like, like runners in a long-distance race. When you're running a race, all your attention, all your focus is on that finish line. And all your, everything you are doing, all your energy is moving towards that finish line. And, and that, is, that is how we are to live in the Christian life. Christ is coming, and all our focus and all our energy is, is pressing on in readiness for him to come again. To make his point here, brothers and sisters, Jesus tells us a story, a story of a wedding. Uh, to unpack it, and to unpack what I think he wants us to learn from it, we'll look at the three main characters in the story that he tells. The first is the bridegroom. So let's start there. The first lesson Jesus teaches us is about the bridegroom. And the first lesson is this. You don't know when the bridegroom is coming, but it's worth the wait and readiness for him. Uh, in, in weddings, in Jesus' day, in the culture we're living the, the, that they were living in, the, the groom would, he would be at his house, and he'd travel over to the bride's house, and he would, he would get her and her entourage, and then they'd all go in a procession back to his house for the wedding ceremony and the, then, the, then the wedding feast. And along that road, they would often do this at night, and along the road they would all be carrying lamps or torches. So it would be this beautiful, festive procession winding through the dark streets towards the, the groom's house for the party to begin, and the party would go on and on, perhaps for days sometimes. Um, But in this parable that Jesus is telling us, the groom is delayed. No surprise there, right? If you've been to a wedding, um, often they don't quite start on time. In in that culture, um, punctuality was entirely different than it is for us. They don't have watches and clocks and and reminders on their calendars beeping at them. they just they, they, they just kind of go with the go with go with the time of day, um, and and so it wasn't a big deal that the groom is late. It's expected that he wouldn't be on time, and so the bridal party there at the wife's house, uh, the bride's house, uh, uh, falls asleep while they wait for him. And the text doesn't say Jesus doesn't condemn them for falling asleep here. This isn't sinful sleep that the ten uh, the ten uh, virgins are taking. They're just they're getting some rest. It could be a long night. They're waiting waiting for him to come. But then, in the middle of the night, 
A shout wakes them up. The groom is here, and it's, and it's time to get up and go. Um, in order to understand the point here, we need to understand the bridegroom, who he is. Uh, that might seem like an obvious one. The bridegroom is Jesus, all right? The Sunday school answer. Uh, but, but it's easy to say, well, that's the answer, and then skate by it without any thought. Um, it's a profound thing that, that the bridegroom is our Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with, the, the roots of this lie in the Old Testament. Um, we read a text earlier in Isaiah 62, which spoke of this, um, where, where the Lord says there, as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Another text, Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 8, says, Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The the texts there bring out just the staggering reality that, that it is to be married to God. Who are we, creatures and sinful creatures, that the maker of the universe should come down and bind himself to us in a covenant of self-giving love and make himself to be our blessedness and reward. What could we offer him? What, could we, what, what loveliness could we give that would draw him to us? What righteousness did we have to give him? Um, he didn't need us, but he, he, he humbles, he, he condescends, he stoops down to give himself to us in love and to care for us and provide for us. And he delights in doing it. Zephaniah 7, uh, chapter 3, verse 17, describes God's affection for us in these words. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. No husband ever delighted in his bride more than God Almighty delights in and takes joy in His people. No, no, no husband ever felt more tenderness and love for his wife than the Lord God feels for His people. No bride was ever more undeserving than we are of that love. But He has given us so much grace and goodness and kindness in Himself. It's a staggering fact that God is the bridegroom. But there's something else to notice in those Old Testament texts beyond simply the fact that God calls himself a husband for his sinful people. Because the Old Testament texts aren't just saying God is our husband now, but they're saying God is, our, is, our, is, our, is the husband of his people and, and, and it's, there's a date coming for the wedding. Um, they're looking forward, these texts. They're all, they're all written, they're all about God's people in exile. Uh, going through the experience of exile. 
uh, being cast out of the land and far from God, a sense of being far from God's presence. But they're all looking forward to when God redeems His people and brings them back to Himself. and, and, And it's the wedding day. In other words, these texts are saying God's relationship with His people is always, always like a marriage. But we're all also looking forward to the day when the marriage is consummated. And so when Jesus comes and He says, I'm the bridegroom, and He calls Himself that, He's saying that He Himself is the fulfillment of these promises. Ephesians 5 tells us this as well. It says, that Christ is the husband to his church, that he loved her and gave himself up for her in order to save her and bring him to himself. And that image tells us all we need to know about the purpose of our salvation. It is to know him. It is to be one with him. That's the purpose of a marriage. Husband and wife to be one together in love. And that's the purpose of redemption. That we be one with Christ. One with Him in glory. And that is, that is the main drama of redemption. Everything else is supporting act. That's the main thing. I recently had the privilege of doing a wedding here at the church. Um, and and it's, it's wonderful to, be, to, to get the, the, the pastor's perspective on a wedding. You get to see the, the faces and, and the, the drama of it all playing out. Uh, but I, I love the imagery of the bride prepared for her husband and being walked down the aisle by her father and given, uh, give, given, given to the groom. And, and that is exactly what, what God is doing for his church. He's, he's preparing her as a bride for the husband, Christ. And he's going, to, he's going to present us spotless and blameless to our Lord Jesus Christ. Walk us down the streets of the New Jerusalem for the wedding of the Lamb. But that day hasn't come yet. It'll be wonderful, but it hasn't come yet. And we need to be ready. We need to be ready. And, and what Christ tells us here is that there is a delay. The bridegroom is delayed. Christ will come. The bridegroom will come. But we don't know when He will come. We don't know how long it will be. We read last week. Last week we read it will be soon. This week, he says, there's a delay. It'll be both, brothers and sisters. It'll be soon. We need to be anticipating it to be soon. And at the same time to know there'll be a delay. We don't know how long the delay will be. And so how do we we wait with both those things in mind? Anticipation, eagerness, it's coming soon. And yet, at the same time, endurance and perseverance. Not not, not burning out quick, but, but in it for the long haul to wait patiently and faithfully. And not speculate. As Josh reminded us early in the service, but to but to wait faithfully on him and his timing. This is Jesus' first point. The bridegroom is coming. It'll be soon, but there will also begin to delay. Wait patiently for him. All right. Second second point, and the second character here or characters was the five wise girls. The five, as one commentator calls them, the five sensible girls. The five wise girls. Uh, this is where we get the second lesson from our Lord Jesus. Uh, he, calls the, he calls them virgins. He's simply identifying them as young unmarried women um, who would typically be like the bridesmaids uh, in, in a wedding procession. They represent here all true Christians. Some people interpret the text, at least 
uh, older commentators used to look at the text often as, as saying that uh, Jesus is saying these are, these are actual virgins and that he's holding out virginity as a, a special virtue. Uh, as, as better, perhaps, than marriage. There are other passages where Christ commends singleness for the sake of the kingdom, uh, but that's not what he's doing here. I think he's just using this as an illustration of these five young girls. Uh, but, but they're supposed to point us to what a real, true Christian, a true citizen of the kingdom of heaven, should be. The point is, is what they do. What, are they, what do they do? What sets them apart? Well, they come prepared to do what they had been asked to do. They bring their lamps. They know it's their job to carry them through the street in the bridal procession, uh, these, these, these lamps. And they also bring the oil to go with them. Um, it, was, uh, it was probably actually, it might have been torches. The, the Greek text isn't exactly clear, a lamp torch. Uh, but uh, it seems like it was a torch with a little rag on the top that you'd soak with oil to, to keep burning. If you didn't bring oil with you, the, it wouldn't last very long at all. Um, so you had to keep soaking it with more oil throughout the procession to keep, it, to keep it burning. And these wise girls, they bring their little flask of oil with them. Just like you would bring your phone charger with you if you're going to be away for a couple nights. Right? It'd be foolish to go on a trip and forget the charger and just bring the phone and know it. you're not going to be able to charge it for a few days. You know you need it. So that's what they're doing. They're not being over-prepared. They're just doing what... The common sense thing is to do. They're being carefully prepared and prudent by bringing this extra oil. They're ready even if there's a delay. Even if things don't go as planned, they've got their extra oil. The result is that when the bridegroom comes, they are ready. They wake up. Bridegroom's coming. Wonderful. We're ready. Take their flask of oil, douse their torch, light it on fire, and and off they go to meet the, the groom and to join the wedding procession. And they go with him to the house where the wedding feast is. And then verse 10. The bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. This is the lesson. If you are prepared for Christ's return, he will welcome you into the heavenly wedding feast. If you're prepared for his return, he'll welcome you into his wedding feast. Two ways we see their readiness. Two ways we see their preparedness. First, they're ready because they took the bridegroom's invitation to the wedding seriously. When he said, will you come to the wedding? Uh, they took it seriously and they, they, they thought it through and they followed through. They didn't just, oh sure, yeah, I'll be there. No, they, they thought it through. They agreed to do it, and they did what was necessary to be prepared for their part in it. Um, and so it is, brothers and sisters. Christ invites us into his kingdom. He calls us to follow him. He invites us to the wedding feast. And, 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 and many people say, yeah, I'll come. But they don't follow through. They, they don't reckon the cost. They don't count the cost. They don't commit. They don't prepare themselves for his return through careful obedience. We are, to, we are to think through his call and to prepare ourselves through the diligent use of the means of grace, as our, as our Westminster Standards put it. Jesus is calling us to be ready by following through with, with faithfulness to him and obedience to him, getting serious about being ready for him and walking in faith and obedience to him. You can't say 
that you're living a life of readiness for His return. If you're not serious about the means of grace, if you're not serious about obedience, if you're not devoting yourself to prayer and the Word and the sacraments, you can't say you're ready. We see this in Revelation 19. It makes the point very clear. It says this, Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. How? It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Readiness is righteousness. Christ's righteousness clothing us, counted to us, and then the righteousness that His Spirit works out in us. That's what we're called to. To be ready. Second, they're ready because they wanted to go to the wedding feast. More than anything else, they wanted to go. This is an implication that we're drawing here. They, they, why did they prepare themselves so thoroughly? Why did they think through what they needed to do carefully and, and, and follow through with it? Because they didn't want to miss the wedding. Because it mattered to them that they would go. This is what drives a life that is, therefore, ready for Christ's return. It's too long for Him to come. Readiness for Christ includes not not just following through with faith and obedience, but a heart that is being tugged heavenward. A a heart that that is pulled inexorably towards Christ because you want to be with Him at the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's such a wonderful illustration that He gives us for, for what that day will be like when we're brought to Him in glory. Isn't it a wedding? A wedding feast? Picture a wedding reception. Just the, the joy that's there, the, the abundance that's there, the, the happiness that's there, all the, the smiling faces and the tables piled high with food and people full of love and for, for each other and the conversation and the music and the dancing and the singing and all of it, just people exulting in, in God's goodness to them and their love for each other. What a wonderful picture. That, that, that's what we're looking forward to. That's where Christ is calling us to. To an everlasting banquet of the goodness of God in sinless fellowship with Him and each other. And we will never, ever grow tired of that or, or, or leave that. We'll be, we'll be untouched by the ache of fleeting time and mortality. We'll be there basking in His love praising His name, rejoicing in what He's done, feasting on His goodness. That's the reward for those who are ready. That's what Christ promises those who are prepared for His coming. He'll lead us to the wedding banquet. So, brothers and sisters, does that make you long for Him to come? Are your hearts homesick for heaven? That's part of readiness. The third character or characters in the story are the five foolish girls. In contrast to the five wise girls who were prepared, uh, now we see the five foolish girls who were not prepared. And here we learn uh, the the third lesson that Jesus teaches us. Um, Who do these five foolish girls represent? Well, if the five wise girls represent true Christians who are ready for Christ, the five foolish girls represent nominal Christians who are not ready for Christ. 
Right? They, they teach us that if you don't take personal responsibility to be ready for Christ's coming, and if you presume on His grace, you'll be shut out from the wedding feast. Like the other five, these five are invited to the wedding. Um, and they they're, they're have a part in it, and they intend to go to the wedding. And on the outside, they look like the five wise girls. But there's a crucial difference, and that is that they are completely unprepared. Two ways they, they fail here. First, they fail to take personal responsibility for their own preparations. Um, they bring torches. They don't bother to bring an extra flask of oil. Um, this shows that they are not taking the invitation seriously. They're not following through with careful obedience. They have, yeah, sure, we'll go. We'll, we'd like to go to the wedding feast. But they're not doing what it takes. Taking responsibility for themselves. And then in verses 6 and 8, when they realize that their torches are sputtering out even as the bridegroom is showing up and they don't have oil, what do they do? Well, give us some of your oil. They try to borrow someone else's preparation. But they can't. The five wise girls say, there's not enough. Uh, run down to the 24-7 oil shop and get some more for your own torches. Um, but it's too late. Their failure to take personal responsibility for their own preparedness means that they miss the bridegroom. Maybe you knew that guy in school uh, who would not do his part of the group project, right? Just kind of let you do all the work. Or maybe you were that person. Um, right, that, that's, that's the sense here. Borrowing someone else's preparedness. And the warning is this, brothers and sisters, you need to take responsibility for your own readiness for Christ's coming. You can't wait to the last minute and try to borrow your spouse's readiness or your parents' readiness or your child's readiness. You need your own readiness. One writer says, being ready for Christ is not something that can be shared or passed on. It's an individual matter. Another commentator, preparedness cannot be transferred or shared. Another one, now suddenly everything is terrifyingly individual. You must take Christ's words seriously here, brothers and sisters, and realize that it is your duty, and no one else's but yours alone to do, to prepare yourself for His coming by giving yourself to the Word, the sacraments, prayer, the means of grace, living a heaven-aimed life. Their second failure is that they presume on the bridegroom. They don't have oil try to borrow some, they can't borrow some, they show up late, and they knock on the door and they figure he'll let them in anyway, even though they weren't prepared. They, um, they, they, they come, they knock on the door, and uh, it's too late. They, they can't go in. Perhaps you know their mentality, you, you, you recognize that mentality. It's, it's not a big deal. It's no big deal if I don't have oil for my torch. The bridegroom will let me in anyway. Oh, I, I know him. He's really nice. He's really forgiving. He'll, he'll look over this. He'll let this go. Um, they come to the door. They knock. And his response is devastating. He says, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. No recognition. They have no place in his wedding banquet. We might say, well, what about the grace of God? 
Doesn't he, isn't he forgiving? Doesn't he forgive our sins? And, 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 and will Jesus really slam the door in my face and leave me standing outside in the cold and not let me come into the banquet? If you presume on his grace, that's exactly what the text says. If you, if you presume on his grace, if you think, no big deal if I don't repent. No big deal if I don't do what he's told me to do. No big deal if I don't take what he says seriously. Then he will shut the door. And he will say, I, I don't know you. There's a poem. Victorian poet Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote about this parable. He says this in his poem, Late, late, so late, in the dark night and chill. Late, late, so late, but we can enter still. Too late, too late. You cannot enter now. Romans four, five, uh, 2, verses 4 and 5 gives us this warning. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be Reveal. Don't presume on His grace. Don't assume that, 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 that he'll, just, he'll just let it go. He'll forgive you. No, brothers and sisters. Give yourself. Give yourself to preparing and, and, and readiness. How? Making good use of the means of grace. And crying out for His mercy. And crying out that He would clothe you with the righteousness of Christ. So that on that day, you're welcomed into His presence. Not, not, not because how prepared you were, but because you were in Christ. Holding fast to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your gracious Gospel in Christ that You call us to Yourself to, to, to nothing less than a wedding feast. We pray that we would respond to that call with faith and with repentance that we would not presume on Your grace, but hungering after heaven, we pray that we would walk diligently in the way that You've called us by the strength that You supply. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.